Are you sheltering in place, isolated, feeling alone? <coughs> well, then you're just like us. Hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the quarantined hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Suckatash Shut-In, the Soundcast stimulus package featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcasts. And now, here's your host for this episode, Mark Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Howdy, chum. As the man says, I am Mark Hirsch on your every other weekly host for Succotash Shut-In, the Soundcast Stimulus Package. This is episode 245, and this week I come to you semi-immune to the coronavirus, more commonly known as COVID-19. One shot down, one shot to go. I don't want to seem overly eager to get the next dose over and done with, but my wife and I are now starting to plan a getaway to Hawaii just to get the hell out of town for the first time in over a year. Switching gears. In case you missed my awesome co-host for last week's Epi 244, you can still catch Tyson Saner and his lineup of soundcast clips that included Mayim Bialik's Breakdown, Humboldt Holding Up, and Behind the Bastards. Find it on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, the Laughable app, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or right on our very own home site at SuccotashShow.com. I have no clips for you this week, but instead, a visit with Michael Rowe, who started out as a stand-up comedian, but who went on to become a comedy writer and producer for TV. Mike's been nominated for a half-dozen Emmy Awards for his work on Futurama and Family Guy, and he even took one home. He's also got a Webby Award for his own animated series, The Paranormal Action Squad. Mike's one of those guys with long roots in comedy that I should know. We have tons of friends in common. In fact, I was turned on to Mike by John Manfrilotti, a friend and comic who was on Succotash a decade ago. Yeah, way back in episode 16. Mike's got a new book coming out, a memoir called It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made, made Me Fat and Bald. I'll jump into the conversation stream with Mike right after we hear from our sponsor, Henderson's Pants, and their new trousers that are just right for tax season, Accountant Pants. Trusted friends, are you part of the 99%? With tax season just around the corner, there's no better time to hitch up your britches and occupy a pair of Henderson's Accountant's Pants. Created by Henderson's Pants CFO Samuel Grifter to keep track of the company's then meager finances right after the stock market crash of 1929, these trousers have a series of interlocking rear pockets made for storing and sorting receipts, invoices, and financial records of every kind. Perfect for day-to-day purchases as well as those one-time big-ticket items. Just pop the paperwork in the patented paper pusher in the back of every pair of Henderson's accountant's pants and it is tucked away in the correct pocket every time. And these pants aren't just for keeping receipts in your seat. While you're taking care of business in the back, our deep pockets in the front are roomy enough to move all your money out of those giant banks and keep that folding green close to home. While there's no accounting for taste, you'll be cooking the books in style with your Henderson's accountant's pants. These trousers may be expensive, but even if you end up breaking the bank to buy a pair, they're made to tighten your belt automatically. And when tax time rolls around, there are no more forms to fill out. Just drop trow and send your Henderson's accountant's pants to the IRS. 
From now on, instead of giving Uncle Sam the shirt off your back, you can give him the pants right off your ass. Originally designed for Black Friday, Bernie Madoff, and national bankers who have trouble keeping their pants on, Henderson's Accountant's Pants are available wherever the 1% are making a mockery of capitalism. That's Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1783. And now back to Suckatash. Do you uh, do you roll and cut, or or is it live on tape? Uh, it's pretty much live on tape, unless you know there's some sort of weird technical breakdown or something, or something like that. But yeah, I don't I don't cut things up, and it'll just be our conversation. Let me introduce you. I may cut part of this, just sort of us doing a little bit of sort of upfront gabbing. Um, but maybe I'll leave it. I don't know. But uh, joining us on Suckatash Shut In is Mike Rowe. Mike, it seems like I should know you because we have a lot of friends in common, I believe, through the world of comedy. I know. Well, it's funny. I've I've been out of the stand-up world for a long time and just been in the TV writing world since early 90s, probably. So uh, are you East Coast? I'm from the East Coast. Well, that's why we have not crossed paths. I'm from the West Coast, and I'm not really from the world of stand-up other than the fact um, I booked a lot of clubs up in San Francisco and I ran a club in Seattle for a few years back in the early eighties. And, uh, I've been heavily into the improv scene since 1983. Mm, so the LA improv, uh, some LA, mostly San Francisco. Oh, okay. Um, I've never been there. Oh, well, gosh. Uh, of course there was the heyday back in the eighties and early nineties before the whole sort of network fell apart. Well, yeah, man, I I was so in love with stand-up as a teenager, and I'm from a small town in Connecticut, Waterbury, Connecticut, a little factory town. So as a teenager, man, I got so obsessed with it. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a teenager buying comedy records, or most of my peers at that time, you know, they're buying, you know, Frampton Comes Alive and, and Fog Hat, and I'm wow. buying George Carlin and Richard Pryor and, you know, and... And what year is this? If I could. this was seventy, it started probably like seventy six. So we're about, I think we're right about the same school then, same class in yeah. school. Because that's when I'm I'm turned on to Monty Python about four years before that, when it sort of gets into the states. And my parents were huge on party records in the sixties, the party comedy records, Red they, Fox and those types. Red Fox, Bob Newhart, George Carlin. Mm. Yeah, um, all those same records. Um, so, what what lured you in initially? What was your first sort of seed that comedy started to call to you? Um, my dad owned this little shitty bar in downtown Waterbury called the Carousel, huh. but it was like such a hole in the wall. But as a, I was, I I hung out there. I was like seven, eight, nine years old, and it was you know drunks and pimps and you know, uh, I I was there usually with, during the softball teams, there, during the beer league nights. So my dad at one point had like 10 or 11 beer league teams. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the the thing was you, uh, if the, the losing team would have to go to the winner's bar and pay for the drinks and all that. But so I, I hung out, I was a little kid, but these softball players were in their 20s. And I started to learn about their camaraderie. Uh, through humor, they would, we're all about making each other laugh, 
And I just saw the fun they were having. And as a kid, I was just mesmerized by it. And my dad was part of that. My dad dabbled in puns often. <laughs> um, so it, it had a clubhouse feeling. And I was this little kid who was a member and I felt great about it, you know. And uh, it also then as you get older, it's like when you want to hang out with the cool kids, there's a good chance you have to like smoke and drink with them. And I just wasn't going to do it. But then I found out if I could make them laugh, they'd let me part it, be part of that inner circle. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm discovering the power of humor, you know? Yeah. And it's I'm funny because older. in, in your book, which we'll sort of plug now, since it's sort of uh, this part of the conversation, I'm thinking about this. It, it's a funny thing how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> a comedy memoir but you talk about and I have not had a chance to read the whole book uh you sent me a copy in advance thank you very much just have been busy but I have skimmed through it and stuff and like I said I feel like we should uh, we should have run into each other somewhere along the way because uh, of the folks you mention in the book and you talk about hanging out backstage or in the street as it were in this one comedy club in New York and it feels to me like the younger version of you telling that story, right? Hanging out at the at the bar with these people and being part of the inner circle and all this thing. So it feels like it's just sort of translated in time. It was such an important time for me because I just, you know, I was, I was still a teenager when I moved to New York City. And this is 1980s New York where it's crack and it's, you know, uh, uh, there were transvestite hookers in my neighborhood. And as a kid, like there were men with breasts, I couldn't understand, like on the street corners, it was very confusing. Uh, but it was kind of the same thing in a way, like my dad's bar, where now I'm at this club, the improv, hanging out at the bar. And now I have my own little circle of funny friends and that camaraderie and that, that clubhouse feeling. So uh, that was, you know, it was like my home away from home and, and Silver Friedman was running the club. She had just started mm -hmm then and she made me feel at home and um so it was great it was um it was a fun time for me you know and I was a kid so it was great and then you make the the leap to Los Angeles and is it primarily to start doing improv at that or start doing comedy at that point or is, is your eye on television already uh it's it had long been on television in fact since even when I was a teenager you know, we talk about, you know, listening to comedy records and stuff. I used to get my little cassette recorder and usually during the Tonight Show or whatever, I would record the comedians, mm. you know, and then just listen to them over and over and just, you know, take the jokes apart and, and try to figure out why do they work and what's funny about them. I became this little joke scientist and I would tell jokes to my friends. You know, I'm, I'm 16, but I'm doing jokes about my uh, my wife and my divorce and, you know. <laughs> Um, but Rodney Dangerfield was the guy for me, you know, as a mm -hmm. kid. And uh, there was one point where uh, he came on a Tonight Show. I mean, he was always on a Tonight Show. But this one night when he sat at the, pa the panel, Johnny got him to kind of be honest and be himself for a minute. And he talked about his life in Catskill Mountains and how he started as a comedian there and didn't do well. He went under the name of Jack Roy. Yeah. And then he talked about his club, Dangerfields in Manhattan. And then my brain started to think, you know, if I wanted to get to Rodney, I can 
contact Jack Roy at Dangerfields and he would like pick up or he would, but my idea was since I knew his jokes so well and I've been studying them, I sat down, I got my mom's manual typewriter and I typed out like two pages of Rodney jokes. (laughs) And then I sent them to Jack Roy at Dangerfields. And, you know, I'm, I'm like in my finished off panel basement. I'm 16 or 17 and a couple of weeks go by. And of course I don't hear anything and I kind of forget about it. And then one night, like the phone rings, my mom's at the top of the stairs. Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. I'm like, what, what do you, you know? And I'm like, hello. Hey, hey Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? Hey, I'm like, what? Uh, you got your jokes, you know, they're really good. You know, I like them, you know, these are good jokes, but oh, they're not wow. for me. I don't do these jokes, but you, and he, he instilled a certain confidence in me because he kept me on the phone for like 20 minutes and just saying, you know, how it's going to take a long time to get funny. If you want to do this, he told me about the showcase clubs in New York, you know, and, and then even like a week later, I got a handwritten letter from him saying, it took me eight years to be funny. And, you know, if you want to do it, get ready, you know, so that was pretty cool. And that was the kind of thing that said, you know, I, I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> what know? a shot in the arm. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Now, yeah. did you ever meet him face to face? Yeah. I, I eventually moved not long after that, a year and a half, maybe. And uh, I started writing jokes for him. Oh, really? And I would meet him at, during the day, I would meet him at his, uh, at, at Dangerfields. Uh, down in he had a basement dressing room and I, I didn't do it often just a couple times but you know I just remember this one time and I'm sitting there this I'm still a kid pretty much I'm 18 or whatever and I'm reading my jokes off the pages and you know and Rodney's pacing and he's wearing his blue robe <laughs> and at one point I figured I, I maybe I connected with him because he just sort of stopped like oh finally some and then he turns and starts peeing in the sink <laughs> You know, don't give me a toilet down here. I got to pee in the sink, you know? I go, all right, I'm in showbiz. Wow. <laughs> um, so you, you so you start writing for him. He literally bought jokes from you. He would he would buy jokes from comics. 50 bucks, kind of the going price. Uh, there were a couple other comics. Rip Taylor, you know, mm-hmm. Rip Taylor? Sure. Rip Taylor, right? Yeah. He was 50 uh, I wrote uh, for him, I'm reading a good book, The History of Crazy Glue. I can't put it down. <laughs> hello, hello. That sounds like him. Uh, that kind of stuff. That's great. Um, That's great. So so what, what are you also performing at this time or, or you're just starting to start out by writing jokes for these guys? No, I was doing stand-up the whole time because I was still in love with it, you know, and just paying my dues and uh, meeting a bunch of comedy friends and building that camaraderie. You know, we we didn't party. We stayed up late in the diners in Manhattan, like two, three in the morning, four in the morning, and just making each other laugh and going over our jokes and what worked and how do you do this and why am I not getting spots here and all that comedian sort of like grousing and laughing and eating and you know um so uh there's a story i tell in the book but this is true i um when i before i moved to manhattan i would take these improv classes at the improv and i got to know the guy that worked at the 
at the bar during the day. Mm. And uh, at one point I said, I'm trying to move into Manhattan so I can start my career. And then he said he had a, a couch in his living room. And they said, if you want to stay there, then I'm like, ah, I guess I'm moving to Manhattan, the free couch to sleep on, which, you know, when you're 18, 19, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny, but I, I, I've been telling a story for years. In fact, when I worked on Futurama, I told Matt Groening this story, which I'll get to, but he made me tell it on the, uh, uh, the writer's uh, ancillary, the, uh, the writer's uh, commentary on the DVD of oh. one of my episodes. So uh, it's just simply this that, you know, came home middle of the night and uh, getting my hard, dusty couch ready to go to sleep that night. And uh, he's in the room right on the other side. And as I'm uh, about to go into the couch, he starts screaming. He's like, oh, a ghost. Oh, my God, a ghost. I'm like, what? What's going on? What? There's a ghost right there in front of you. I can't. I, I don't see a ghost. What are you? What are you talking about? Oh my god! Oh, like it's a ghost. And it's, it's like there's like a pause. And goes, he's gone. Oh, the ghost is gone. And he goes, uh, if if you're scared and you want to come in here, there's plenty of room in the bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so that was his. Uh, and even my. You know, 19-year-old brain didn't even register of what exactly was happening. It wasn't literally until like three years after I moved out, I was talking to one of the waitresses at the improv who knew him. And I told her a story and she just started laughing. I'm like, what? Well, you know, he's gay. Oh. oh. <laughs> so you're, you're doing the stand-up thing, but you've got your eye on television. Um, and what, so you told me sort of what attracted you to comedy in the first place, but what is it that starts luring you to think about writing for television? First of all, it was kind of fun writing for comics and then even sort of helping my comic friends shape their act and seeing that happen. And that was interesting. Um, but there was a, oh, you know, I hate to go on the road, right? Mm -hmm. Don't stand up. And I was 20, at this point I was probably 23 or four or so. And I'm starting to realize I don't have the fire in me to work that hard to become Robert Klein or Carlin or the people I admire. I kind of knew, who knows, maybe I knew my talented, talent wasn't that. I mean, it, it, no matter what, I mean, you just kind of like, uh, I just kind of knew if I don't like going on the road now at 24, what happens when I'm 50, you know? Yeah. And it takes that fire. I mean, it's, I, it was one of the reasons that I, you know, although I was working around and in, in stand-up comedy, I didn't want to do it either uh, because it, you had to become, your act had to become bulletproof to become good. And the only way I could get bulletproof is to go on the road and play in front of many different audiences as you can. Right, try it in front around the country if you can manage to pull that off, and it was it is very daunting. Right, and also uh, there's a lot of bad habits you pick up on the road if you want to become sort of like a TV friendly comic. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think the road is a good place to learn how to develop because you it seems like in a lot of cases you kind of resort to you know uh, I don't know the, the sort of a lower 
base, you know, you, you, you kind of do what you need to do to get them to laugh, you know, uh, in other words, you're kind of building your act, I think towards those crowds, but they're, at least in my experiences, they were just kind of drunks and, you know, I don't know. I, maybe that's part of my problem. I was just trying, I was just, I got to a point where I wasn't that interested in making people I don't know laugh. In fact, <laughs> my act turned into just trying to make the comics in the back of the room laugh. Mm-hmm. And where does that get you? <laughs> well, I guess television. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was it, you know. Worked for Larry David and it's worked for you, so. Yes. Um, not in the Larry David way, but, you know. That's that's okay. You've, you've had a not immodest career at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's in truth, I mean, I certainly have done more and I've gotten further than I ever thought, you know. Um, when uh, when I won an Emmy, it was, you know, I don't I don't even think of it like you know, wow, this is going to make the doors open in the industry or any of that stuff. I didn't even I didn't even consider kind of what it means in the industry. It was more of you know, it was a couple of things. It was like me as a kid when I started this business and having that kid like view of like, hey, maybe I'll win an Emmy someday. You know the. <laughs> pie in the sky thought of that but then to actually win it it was sort of more emotionally interesting to me in that way you know and what, what did you feel when you won it what's that what did you feel when you won it it was uh it was kind of uh, maybe what i imagined winning the super bowl ring i don't know mm-hmm. uh it was it was a, hitting a goal post you know um I guess I think that's what it felt like. You know, it was very exciting, you know, and it was a, it was an interesting night because my dad and I, since I was a kid, we really bonded through comedy. You know, we would laugh at the comedians, the old timers on TV, like uh, Norm Crosby and, and, and uh, Charlie Callis and Henny Youngman and all those guys. So my dad and I bonded through comedy. In fact, on his deathbed, uh, his wife, <clears throat> it was like my last night with him, and his wife said to me, he goes, read, you know, tonight, read your dad the scriptures. And uh, when she left the room, I put uh, Hannah Youngman jokes on my phone and, and ready, read Hannah Youngman jokes. <laughs> that was our scripture. Yeah. Um, but, you know, actually, on my dad's 60th birthday, and this is where he lived in a little smaller town in Connecticut, he had a party in his basement with, you know, 60, 70 of his closest friends and family. And I hired Henny Youngman to show up at his party. Oh, did you really? Yeah. And he like, it's funny too, because when I announced him and Henny came down the stairs in the basement, and my dad just didn't believe it. He probably just thought like one of my friends was going to impersonate him. <laughs> and then he came down with the loud jacket and the violin and just, went at it in the middle of the room. You know, it was amazing. My dad shut up, shot up out of his chair and did a pirouette. And it was, it was a pretty great night. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so uh, part of the, uh, the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, pitching to this guy at the, at the Disney channel or at Disney. I don't know if it was the Disney channel, but at Disney. Yeah. And uh, I, I had a similar situation pitch pitching to it may have been the same guy quite frankly at disney um i had uh, had some success with um some uh 
made for TV movies at uh, the Hallmark Channel. Okay. And so I got invited to come and pitch at Disney. And I had this, this whole this whole pitch about a, this kid who uh, his best friend gets um, disappears for the summer. And when he comes back, he's a very different kid. And it's like one of those kind of growth spurt things. He's like, you know, a foot taller and he's acting all kind of adult and whatnot. And it turns out he's been away in outer space and he's been replaced by an alien, basically. And the guy just looks at me and says, we do not have children taken over by anything on this channel. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, was, that was the end of that pitch. <laughs> but you're, you're talking about that attitude of going on the Disney lot and seeing those giant dwarves holding up the roof yeah. and walking the halls with all these amazing animation cells from the classic movies. What, what was that? I mean, the, talk to the sort of the listeners about what is that feeling like? when you get there and you see that well even you know to this day when i'm kind of walking onto these historic lots or eventually working there that that kid-like feeling doesn't go away you're like am i allowed to be here is this right is this you know uh to be part of these hallowed halls you know and it, it in a way it adds a little more stress and pressure like if you're going on a meeting because you know you're in the in the museum of you know great things you're walking into history and it's like well do i do i measure up to this stuff i mean this has been here for 70 years and you know um but then i eventually worked on the lot i think a few times so that was uh that was pretty great and especially like the disney lot and the animation building this the small one a lot of those things have been untouched since since it's been there you know so walt was himself was wandering those halls at and smoking at some point. Yes, yes. So, uh, what was your first uh, your first sale? What was the first thing you actually got paid for and then got produced? Because I, I think um, you know, there's plenty of stories of selling things and then they just you never hear from them again. But well, I was lucky. It actually happened before I moved to Hollywood. There was a Saturday morning half hour cartoon of Alf. Mm. remember Alf the TV show yeah yeah so he had a a friend worked he had a, a friend of a friend was worked on that show and this friend knew that I wanted to write half hours so I met with those guys and I got to write it was like it was called Alf Tales and it was Alf put in different fairy tales Alf and the characters okay and it was a half hour and it was, and it got produced, and I think I got like $10,000 for it. And if you could imagine, you know, I'm doing gigs for like the clubs pay $10, you know, <laughs> weekends it's 25 You know, I'm making 300 I'm, I'm making my rent, you know, that's about it. Yeah, and working a lot, having to shuffle a lot, right? This is New York, so you're running back and forth like yeah. on the weekends and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and especially in Manhattan, there was a time where I think I did 11 shows in one Saturday night. <laughs> and, and you feel you've made it at that point. It was there yeah. an extent, right? As a stand-up, you're going, this is amazing. I'm everywhere. I know. There's something, though, about the innocence of that. 
and and the fun of it of like I'm gonna go do a gig over here. I'll get to hang out with some friends first while I'm waiting to go on. Then I'll meet up another friend at another gig and. And there was all these sort of cool little places, especially in the village that I got to work at. There was the, uh, I mean, there was the uh, Comedy Cellar, of course, and there was the Boston Comedy Club in the village. Uh, the uh, the Village Gate, the mm-hmm. historic Village Gate. In fact, I had this cool thing happen. I'm like waiting to go on stage upstairs and I'm in the kitchen and I hear there's like this little door to the kitchen and I hear like music coming out of it. I'm like, what the heck? Hell. And then I, I opened the door and it's just big enough barely for me to get in. And it's just like dark basement and it's this rickety spiral staircase. And I make my way down and I get down there. There's a show. There's probably 40 people and it's Bo Diddley. No kidding. Just playing. I'm like, what? It was like walking into this weird dream or something. It's like, <laughs> I just love shit like that, that, you know, especially in New York, you know, that stuff happens, those moments, you know? Yeah. Uh, I used to work at the bottom line all the time and open for a lot of acts and just these great moments. I opened for Kenny G for a couple of nights and, uh, and Kenny G was really great in the, at this time. I mean, he was, he wasn't as soft as he became and, and like mm-hmm. jazz guys would come and see him play and stuff like that. But at the bottom line in the, in the back, there's a hallway, there's our dressing rooms, one on each side and they're big dressing rooms. And the second night between shows, I'm in my dressing room by myself and I look down and, and Kenny G's got a, a big party going on. And, you know, there's hot women and there's, there's celebrities and there's like a food table and I'm like by myself, like, and I thought he and I were, you know, hit it off. We were hanging out and then I'm like in a doorway trying to get his attention, you know, and then finally our eyes connect and he's like, oh, Mike, oh. And he kind of jogs over to my door. He goes, Mike, I'm having a party going on in my dressing room. Is it okay if I take a shit in here? <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Oh, man. Now, did you ever get a chance to uh, open for any of uh, sort of the comic idols that you'd listen to or, or run across? Um, soupy Sales. Really? Because as a kid, as a little kid, Soupy Sales is the first thing I remember laughing at on mm. TV. And then uh, later, uh, when I moved to New York, I wrote for a show in New Jersey called The Uncle Floyd Show. Mm. Uh, not many people know, but The Uncle Floyd Show was kind of like, very much like the Soupy Sales show, show, only for like stoners and, you know, it was the... <laughs> And that was my first writing job. But, you know, I had this thing about Subi Sales that just, I don't, you know, I had never laughed at anything before. So that got to open for him. Uh, my moment with him was uh, working at, I think, uh, Rascals in West Orange, but it has this giant green room. And I'm like walking back there going, I'm going to meet Subi Sales. I can't believe it. And as I walk in, the bathroom door opens and Soupy comes out kind of his nose, holding his nose. He's like, Hey, uh, how you doing? Uh, I just took a big shit in here. Do you have any matches? <laughs> why are, why are all your run-ins people? seem to be about celebrities needing to use their restroom? We're having just no, used I, restroom. Rodney, I got Kenny G. I got <laughs> <laughs> that's so, a whole other book of people so you, who shit around me. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, your book is rife with with anecdotes, and you know, we don't have we don't have that long of a show here. But uh, is there if someone's going to go, you know, pick up the book? Are are there elements in here that you were really tickled to get to put down on on paper that you go, man, I can't wait till someone reads this particular story. Well, um, the 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 kind of more interesting story is the. Uh, it's a long story, but I'll, so I'll just tease it. But I, I worked. Uh, I went to a technical high school because it was deemed I was deemed uh, not college material. <laughs> so I, I learned electronics, and then when I went to New York City, I got a job, a day job, repairing audiovisual equipment. And part of my job was to go to Times Square, 1980s, go to the porn district, into the porn theaters, and do maintenance on the projection equipment. Okay. <laughs> and so in the book, there's the whole story of like what I saw in there. And again, I wasn't that too long off the Greyhound bus, you know, <laughs> just a young boy out of Connecticut thrown into the underbelly of porno Manhattan was, uh, so there's a, those stories are fun. My hanging out with Martin Scorsese story. Uh, I'm, I'm teasing all these stories, but yeah, you know, in, okay. in, in, in general, though, the, the, what I what I wanted to accomplish with this book is uh, thinking about young people who are interested in like chasing their wildest dreams. You know, uh, what you know, it's a, it, the whole book is a journey of like what could happen when you kind of go up after these things that are kind of impossible, and it's not even necessarily show business. It's you know, but it's like. You know, I, 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 like I can't imagine like if one kid reads this and like, you know, I maybe I can be in the NBA or something like that. You know what I mean? If it inspires them, even one kid like that, or I, why, why can't I be in show business? You know, that was kind of the purpose of it. it it's the older me talking to the young me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Saying, here's what's going to happen to you, you know? Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so the, I mean, there's the book also. It's it's got kind of the sort of some of the pitfalls you you fell into in in trying to to get to where your your path was taking you, and um, uh, I imagine as you got further along, you got uh, somewhat wise to the things that the younger you ran into. But uh, how did that prepare you for things that you? didn't know might be down the line as you were sort of getting more success in the business? Um, hmm. uh, it's kind of hard, you know, because uh, I feel like I'm learning something all the time, even to this day, you know, I'm, I'm still lucky enough to be working pretty much, you know, so I feel like, I, I feel like I, I, there's no way I'm going to know everything to, you know, I, I don't have everything figured out. In fact, it's almost like the more I know, the less I know. Yeah. yeah I'm familiar with that. Uh, no. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's another thing. It's like as much experience as, as you have, you, you may be better equipped to deal with them, but you still don't know what, you know, every time I get on a new show or sell a project, you know, or, sell a pitch or something, my next automatic feeling is, all right, what, when's the shoe going to drop? You know, something's going to, some bottom is going to fall out, you know, <laughs> it's, it's cynical, but it's, you know, uh, a lot of times that's what happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I was going to ask um, something that just completely went out of my head, um, but it had to do with uh, sort of going down this this path. Um, oh, I know. I was going to. This actually is sort of just sort of taking another turn. Um, and what's it been like uh, for you uh, during the pandemic in terms of jobs and what's going on with the industry right now? In truth, it's been very productive. This is the most I've developed and pitched shows. Oh, really? Even though on Zoom, yeah. So I've been developing a lot of shows with other writers online, uh, pitching a bunch of stuff, um, and writing a pilot. Now there's really no excuse, you know, why you're not working. Uh, so in some ways, it's been helpful. Um, I, I was going to buy a second car because we've always had a second car. And like I, di I didn't buy it, you know, uh, I figure it's going to sit in the driveway. So I'm, I'm stuck even more at yeah. home because my wife is working. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm finding it very productive, surprisingly. Uh, I, I think it's good. I mean, I'm going to... I have friends I see, you know, once a week or twice a week. And I, we used to have this Tuesday night hangout at this bar in uh, North Hollywood. And then eventually we just get together on Zoom uh, every Tuesday. So there's eight <laughs> to 12 of us all being idiots on, the, on Zoom. And it also connected me to other comedians who have since moved away to other cities. And then we're all kind of back. So there's there's that. So it, it, it hasn't been horrible, you know, it's been, it's been productive. Do you think when the, when these things lift, as they're beginning to open up now that there's going to be kind of a opening of the floodgates of all these creative types that have been locked down for a year, a year that have just been sort of churning out material and sort of not having that much of an outlet for it? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, um, I feel like stuff has what has been being was being written all this time, and stuff has been handed in. And I, I, another concern is like there's probably just a lot of stuff built up on the runway that was supposed to go into production. So, oh yeah, um, we the, the pitching so far we've been doing is I've been attaching studios. So I've been, you know, the pitches have been to studios to say come and join us on this thing. And then so as I'm building the studios, we have yet to go into the marketplace. So I, don't even, I don't even know what to expect exactly. You know, yeah, that's interesting. Um, we did sell a, a a Christmas animated Christmas musical. Oh, uh, Jason Mraz doing nice. the music. Uh, Nancy Cartwright, Bart Simpson doing yeah, yeah. voice. Uh, Allison Janney and a bunch of other people. You know, oh, that's fun. Um, but. You know, everything, you know, everything takes forever. I, you know, I got like five or six things going, but I have nothing going. You know what I mean? They're all in different forms of development and redevelopment, you know, but. But you're staying busy, so it doesn't feel like nothing's happening. Right. I mean, I, my job is sitting at my desk anyway, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I've, you know, I work for this branding studio full-time up here in San Francisco, and we've been gone from the office literally a year this week. And uh, so I've been working from home as everyone else in my office. And some of them are going crazy. They're used to being able to go in an office and have that sort of social thing that office workers have. But I've spent so much time writing on my own over the years that to me, this is second nature uh, be at home writing. So it's actually not that big a deal. And you must feel kind of the same that you're comfortable there. Yeah. Now, do you, how often do you do a podcast? 
I, well, I started this podcast 10 years ago. Hmm. And uh, a couple of years ago, I just got tired of doing it. And it was mostly, I do interviews, but it's uh, the main thing we do is we clip other comedy podcasts mm-hmm. and and just play them. I started it when podcasting had sort of had a, a gradual sort of mini rise in like 2005, 2006 with Ricky Gervais and people like that. Mm-hmm. And then it was beginning to die out. And I had a bunch of friends who were getting into it as comics and I wanted to do one. And I said, well, what can I do that's different? And I said, well, why don't I just try and promote their podcast? So I just started clipping people's shows and doing like these clip shows. Ah. And uh, then I started doing interviews with people, um, Manfrelati, uh, Rick Overton, Dana uh-huh. Carvey, all these people. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I just kind of got burned out doing it and it wasn't coming out very regularly. And as a podcast producer for a long time, it's like, you got to drop every week or you're just not going to develop your audience. And right. I was, and I had an associate producer that was doing most of the clipping for me. And I, I turned around, and asked him if he wanted to host. And so he took over as host for a couple of years. And then when the pandemic came and they locked down, I read this figure that podcast listenership was beginning to drop. During the pandemic? Yeah, because no one was going to work. No one was going outside. They weren't uh-huh. jogging. They weren't going to the gym. They weren't on, on the bus. They weren't on the subways uh-huh. listening. And you don't, it's not like the old Philco radio days where they're sitting at home with the family around a hot, you know, podcast. Right. And so they were beginning to drop off because people weren't listening. So I said, well, let's just go back to what we started doing, which was to just promote these things and let people know what's out there. Um, so he and I began switching off weeks uh, just about a year ago. So we finally, after 10 years, been doing a weekly podcast oh. for the last year, uh, except we just, we take turns hosting each week. Does that do you does it help like socially like you know talking to people as sort of a uh, way to, to help deal with the pandemic like through it's it's really interesting to have these these conversations with people because people have have handled it in in some ways very similar fashions in terms of you know what they're doing about being careful and going out and staying isolated um, but there's also very sort of different reactions to it mentally some people do feel like they're a caged cat and they just are going, you know, bananas. Other people like you and I've been talking about, this is kind of second nature. Right. Um, you know, I like to go out and hang out with my friends too, but if I have to be here sitting behind my computer and doing some writing or whatever, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I had a text conversation with George Wallace uh, last week. Um, and he's been locked down in Atlanta for the whole time because he's totally paranoid about catching this and he's had his he's gotten i think he's gotten both of his injections at this point of the vaccine but he's been locked down at this condo he owns in atlanta and uh he was just you know just totally scared he goes i go out to get groceries once in a while but he says i just i i hate being locked up that that's the real dichotomy for someone like him right right and you know uh, he's probably not a good case of uh, someone who should get COVID, he probably may not do well. He's yeah. older and, you know. Yeah. Um, what was I, I was going to ask something, I forgot. Um, hmm. um, yeah, I forgot. I had something That's okay. That's all right. Um, well, I was going to say, the other thing I was going to say that we were talking about uh, how we're handling the virus and being at home. The the thing I noticed though, I I've been visiting the liquor cabinet more often. 
and uh, and I'm also like smoking a cigar every day. Oh, okay, all right. And uh, I mean, I I would smoke one every two weeks or something, but now it's like it's become a ritual because it's something to do. I'll sit on the back porch and put on music and then smoke a cigar. Well, it's a it's a different routine for a different time. I mean, you know. I've been you know, trying to lose weight. I, I, I get out, we've, we've got these hills here, you know, out in this parkland and I get out four or five days a week and do four or five mile run. Um, but my doc, I went in for my checkup after not seeing my doctor for a year. He says, I thought you run like five times a week. I said, I do. He says, why haven't you lost any weight? I said, well, look at it this way. I haven't gained any weight. <laughs> uh, I know, man, I can't even, it's so frustrating. I, I saw a documentary last night on weight and it says ultimately what they find out is your body is fighting to the weight it wants to be from what it recognizes you should be genetically. Mm. So it's, you know, cause I, I'm seeing a nutritionist and I keep asking him, you know, like how come, you know, I don't, I eat as many calories as most people. And, and he's, you know, he said, well, you're going to have to like to, to lose weight. You got to be like, you know, very calorie restrictive. I have to just work harder than most people. I'm like, oh, yeah. And the, 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 th- the tough thing your body does doing that is it goes into like this starvation mode thing where it will hang on to every calorie that it can get for a while. So it takes a long time to push it over the edge and it starts coming off. I went on one of those, you know, high protein, low carb diets, hardcore about five or six years ago. And I lost a bunch of weight. I got down, you know, I think I lost like 50 pounds. And it was great, but I felt like shit because I was just like, without carbs, your brain slows down. And the work I do, the work you do, you need your brain clicking as hard as it can go to get to that new level where people have not written something, or in my case, come up with a brand name that someone has not come up with yet. Oh, it's funny you say that because I am on a low carb diet and I feel, uh, more befuddlement i thought it might be due to age or maybe it is but it may be in part but it is because because when i was on this hardcore thing it was like eight months and i would go to work and i just go i can't think i guess it could be it could be my newfound alcoholism there's that (laughs) that could be i mean there's a seems like there's a number of factors at work that's right well, Mike, this has been great. Uh, I, you know, I would love to when uh, when things lift. I do get to LA very frequently when we're allowed to actually travel. I'd love to hang out with you and maybe revisit for the show, or just hang out with you and Manfrolati and have breakfast or yeah, do yeah. something like that. Get into a street fight of some kind. You that know. would be the best, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I'm thanks for uh, talking about the book. Uh, I have no idea what I'm got myself into, and I don't know if anybody. We'll buy it. Um, people are buying it, actually, but, you well, know. Well, let's mention it again. It's a funny thing, how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. <laughs> a comedy memoir by Michael Rowe. Obviously, mm-hmm. going a little fancy here. Well, I don't want to, I kept getting confused with Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe. In fact, I did a podcast, and it wasn't until five minutes before that she realized I was the wrong Mike Rowe. Oh, that's so funny. You can imagine that. Because it's funny because, again, although we've, we've not met or crossed paths, as soon as when Manfrolati had mentioned that you had this book coming out, um, I never for a second confused it with that guy. And that's because you know Manfrolati would never <laughs> go near that guy. So there's that. Even though he idolizes Mike Rowe. That's right. 
dirt, dirty jobs. Um, yeah, so it's a, a funny thing. And where's the, we're obviously Amazon, uh, other yeah. places people can get uh, it. It's at the publisher website, bearmanor.com. Okay. Bear as in grizzly bear, bear manor. All right. Uh, it's supposed to be on uh, Barnes and Noble website, I think, too. Um, All right. Well, I'll put up a couple of links. We have a blog piece that uh, accompanies our episode every week. So I'll make sure to link it to that. Groovy. And uh, thanks for spending a little bit of time with us on Succotash, Mike. All right. Thank you. Thanks to Mike Rowe for taking the time to chat. That was actually recorded a couple of weeks ago, and I have now finished It's a Funny Thing. Very funny book. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. And it's available up at Amazon for sure. There's a link in our blog entry for this episode at SuckatashShow.com. And you can check around other places. I didn't see it at BarnesandNoble.com yet, but maybe it'll be there soon. Tyson will be back with you next week for episode 246. I will return the week after that. In the meantime... Keep your nose clean, your feet wiped, your teeth brushed, your hands washed, and your face covered while you socially distance. And if anyone asks if you've heard anything good lately, please do not hesitate to pass the Succotash. Bill? You've been listening to Succotash Shut In, the Soundcast Stimulus Package, with your host, Mark Hershaw. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckAttackShow.com. On iTunes. On Stitcher. On iHeartRadio. On YouTube. On SoundCloud. On the... <laughs> laughable app. And tattooed on your mother's rear end. You can hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at tyson at SuckAttackShow.com. Or call into the Suckatash Skype line at our toll call number 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcast directly to us using our direct upload link at Hightail.com slash you slash Suckatash. Production of Succotash is overseen by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershon and Tyson Sainer. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is still Kenny Durgis. And until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please wash your hands and pass the Succotash. Goodbye. This has been a Succotash Patch production.